Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Robert Bezado. I'm an assistant professor here at the European Institute of the London School of Economics. Thank you very much for coming to uh, this session of Europe in Question. Uh, it's a yearly uh, series we are running, so next year it will also be on, so please join us next year if you're interested. Um, and today we are very happy to uh, welcome uh, Professor Elspeth Geild, um, Natasha Zaun, and uh, Simon Glenn Denning. Um, so perhaps I shall quickly introduce our speakers, and then we start with the topic, which is Europe's in, Europe in maps. So Professor Geild is a Jean Monnet professor at Queen Mary University in uh, London, but you also work for Rutbound University in the Netherlands. You are a fellow, a research fellow at the law firm Kingsley and Napley here in London. You used to be a fellow at SEPS, as I just <laughs> learned. Uh, you're not anymore. And you're also a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges. Um, your research primarily focuses on justice and home affairs, in particular migration and asylum policy. And uh, you also work from time to time on privacy and data protection questions. You have been a political consultant uh, and advisor for many institutions, uh, such as the European Parliament, the European Commission, UNCHR, so the United Nations Refugee Organizations, but also for the House of Lords here in the UK. Um, Natasha Zaun is a colleague here at the European Institute, an assistant professor for migration studies. Um, you uh, were previously a postdoc at Oxford at the Global Refugee Studies Center. Um, um, Natasha holds a PhD from the University of Bremen and was also a research assistant at the University of Mainz in, in Germany. Um, Natasha primarily works on European but also global migration and asylum policy and in particular burden sharing uh, across different countries, so migration flows, how does the burden of, of migration get shifted around the EU. Uh, you have obviously published in uh, many journals, which I will not all enumerate, but uh, there's a lot out there in case you're interested. Um, and then our last speaker will be Simon Glendinning, um, a professor here uh, for European philosophy at the European Institute as well. You studied philosophy at the University of York and Oxford, and uh, before joining the LSE in 2007, you were a lecturer at Kent and Reading University. As far as I understand, I work on trade policy, so it's not my uh, most immediate uh, um, research uh, topic. You work on European identity and identities, Hegel, Derrida, and uh, continental philosophy at large. No? Am I <laughs> correct on that? All right. So what I suggest is um, that the speakers each have about 10 minutes to convey their ideas. Um, Ms. Uh, Professor Geild will be speaking as Europe as Schengen. Natasha Zaun will be talking about Europe's role in global protection and responsibility sharing and migration flows. And Simon will be talking about the oldest map of the world and how the world is actually divided in reality. And so each speaker will talk for about 10 minutes maximum 15 minutes, and then I would actually like to open up the floor to questions and answers and discussion here with you, okay? So thank you very much. And, um thank you very much, David, for such a nice introduction, and uh, it's really an honor to be here with such a distinguished panel and such a distinguished audience. I'm going to start, at least I thought I was going to start, with a map that I was going to show you. Will that appear? I think you have someone to. going to yeah, I think you have the map up. Yeah. 
Ah, okay, there we are. Okay. So here we are. The, um, what, what is Europe in maps? And I thought the starting place that we need to take for this particular voyage is how the idea of what is Europe has been transformed, particularly since the 1980s, the mid-1980s, 1984 onwards, up until today, and how the transformation of what the map of Europe is has been influenced profoundly by the movement of people. So what we've got in the um, darker green is what is commonly called Schengenland. And Schengenland are those states which have signed up to a, an area without internal borders on the free movement of persons. So if you want to go from Italy through any of the dark green areas around Europe, at least in theory, there will be no border control. You pass without border control. Now, you ask that of um, someone with the wrong appearance, uh, perhaps traveling in a car with license plates from a new member state, and they will tell you, well, they may not go through a border control, but they are stopped in a police check, identity check, somewhere within the border if they're passing through Germany, etc. So incomplete, but nonetheless, as someone who travels frequently across these areas, working in the Netherlands, often flying back to London via Germany, the only way I know that I've crossed the Dutch-German border is because my telephone tells me I've changed provider. So there is a transformation. We have all of these lines on this map. We have this common color. But actually, the reality of it is that you rarely come across the changing status of the border. Now, remember, the magic of the border for people is a very, very powerful one. Because when you cross a border, the fact of having done so transforms you from being a citizen in your own country to being a foreigner, a potential migrant, a potential illegal migrant, into someone who is no longer a citizen with entitlements. And when you cross back, you are suddenly, by crossing that border, the magic of the border is to envelop you in all of those constitutional rights that are inherent in citizenship. And yet in this dark green area, you can travel around with a sense of common entitlement, which you don't have elsewhere. Now, down in the bottom corner, we have Greece. Greece is out of the system for the moment because of refugees. And I'll come back to refugees in a moment. You'll see from the map that this is not a map of the European Union. We have Norway in there. We have Iceland in there. Uh, we have Switzerland in there, uh, more or less, with uh, an agreement. We don't have the UK and Ireland in. Uh, and Romania and Bulgaria over on the side are another color. Why are they another color? Because they want to be part of the system, but nobody's let them in yet. 
There's a proposal now they behave particularly well during the arrival of substantial numbers of refugees and migrants in 2015-2016. Romania and Bulgaria agreed to do the whole relocation, took in lots more than anybody else, and the payoff is now coming that they can abolish border controls with the rest of the member states. Greece, as a result of that movement of persons, got kicked out of the common green area, and they're now border controls. But the arrival of about a million asylum seekers and migrants in 2015 and another <coughs> million more or less in 2016 put a tremendous pressure on this common area. The idea that you could arrive from Turkey into Greece and then move directly up to wherever you wanted to go was very destabilizing for many member states. And the big controversy broke out in two parts of Europe. The first part of Europe where it broke out was in Germany and Austria. They reintroduced border controls at their common border. And in the Nordic states, between Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. So the farthest you can possibly get from Greece is a center of tremendous controversy about the arrival of people and border controls. And then the two countries which from time to time have been one, Germany and Austria, decide they need border controls to stop the movement of a million asylum seekers around Europe. And remember, Europe has a population of over 500 million people. It has tourists every year of over 500 million people coming into Europe. A million asylum seekers are astonishing in their capacity to destabilize this world of commonality. So what happened? Well, we had our million. We reintroduced our border controls only at some states. France reintroduced border controls because of its endless terrorism attacks over there, but um, they're a bit of an exception, so we'll leave them aside. What has happened since? Now... We're in uh, 2018, and the European Asylum Support Office tells us that the crisis is over. There was a crisis. The crisis is over. How has the crisis been over? Well, they say there have been a, uh, a drop of 43% in asylum applications from 1.2 million to 700,000, 706,913. We have very exact numbers from IASO. Where are they coming from? There you have it, Syrians, Iraqis, Afghans, and Nigerians, uh, most are Syrians. How many get protection? About 40%. It was up to 50% last year. It's dropped down slightly. But that's, that means at least more or less half are not going to be going back. Where do they go? The crisis and the reintroduction of border controls in Germany was to make the other member states take their fair share. And that was really successful. In 2015, Germany had 35% of the asylum applicants in Europe. And in 2016, they had 60%. So border controls were extremely effective in bringing everybody to Germany. Sweden, 2015, they had 12%. 2016, they had 2%. So the opposite of Germany, there the reintroduction of border controls might have had a consequence. 
Why do asylum seekers move around the European Union? It's because there are differential uh, decisions. They're looking for security. Some member states provide security. Other member states have very high rejection rates. And therefore, you don't get a fair shake if you're applying for asylum, depending on the member state. And now I'm going to turn to my final slide, which is whose map? For, who's, for whom does this map apply? We looked at the wonderful Schengen map. If you're inside, it's all good. What if you can't get inside? <clears throat> what if you want and you need to seek protection? Whose map applies to you? And here we have one of those endless photographs of people arriving because the only map which works for them is the map of the sea. Thank you very much for your attention. It's great that I'm speaking after um, Elspeth because our talks actually link quite, quite well because I'm looking more at the, at the global perspective and to see how is Europe doing in, in global perspective in terms of refugee protection, so what, how much is Europe actually doing? We always think that Europe is doing a lot. Is, is that true? And then in a second step, um, how much is, is Europe doing in also helping countries that perhaps uh, receive even more refugees. Um, and I think this map is quite illustrative because, um, first of all, it shows, okay, there are t today more than um, um, 60 million forcibly displaced uh, people in the world. But what it also shows is, um, and if you look at the green dots in particular, uh, most people are not necessarily refugees, so they're not necessarily crossing a border, but they are um, mainly internally displaced, so people who are fleeing within their country. And yeah, you see most of the dots really are, they are, they are green ones, right? That, those are the, the internally displaced people. Pink would be for refugees and blue for asylum seekers. Um, and so most forcibly displaced people um, today are actually in the developing world, so in countries like, um, uh, for example, Syria or um, in Iraq, uh, many African countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, Nigeria, um, also countries like Ethiopia, um, and obviously also in, in um, Colombia. So that's, that's it for the, for the um, internally displaced people. If we now look into um, uh, refugees and asylum seekers, we also see that still most of the refugees and asylum seekers, uh, and here it's interesting to, to distinguish asylum seekers and refugees. Um, asylum seekers are people who are still in the process of applying for, uh, for a status, and refugees are people who, have a, who are already recognized, as obviously who have a recognized status. Uh, but what is interesting is that many countries in the Global South, again, don't actually have asylum procedures. So they would recognize refugees immediately just because they're crossing the border, whereas especially in, um, countries in the Global North don't do that. So European countries do, don't do that. And you see that most of the pink uh, uh, dots uh, are actually, yeah, they are in, in neighboring countries of Syria, for example. So you see uh, here, um, it's, it's unfortunate that I don't have a point or anything, because this was actually an interactive map, so I would really have liked to, to use the in interactive map, but I think it's also quite illustrative. So you see that Turkey is one of the top receiving countries, uh, Lebanon um, and Jordan, but uh, also, again, many African countries in Central, Central Africa, such as, for example, Uganda, uh, Kenya, again, um, um, yeah, um, Sudan and uh, South Sudan. But you can also see that in the global north, so in the in the um, developed world, actually some European countries do receive a, a, a decent share of um, uh, refugees and asylum seekers. 
apart from um, the U.S., these would be mainly in Europe. So these would be countries like Germany, uh, France, Sweden, um, perhaps Italy. Um, so you can see, yes, I mean, in a way, Europe or some European countries are receiving a certain share, but obviously the, the largest share is still in the developing world, and especially, again, in countries um, that, are, that are close to the, uh, the, the sending or the, the, the countries orig of origin of refugees, because obviously most people want to return and don't have the means to, to move on. Um, and then I want to put this a little bit into perspective, just to see, okay, more generally, if we think of the capacities that, that uh, countries have, how is Europe doing? Uh, so these, and please don't look too much at the numbers because here I'm controlling kind of for refugees per, per, per GDP per capita. So it's really looking into uh, how many refugees a country is taking uh, depending or in, in relation to, to the means it really has and in relation to the capacity. So the, the numbers in the chart doesn't, don't really allude to a number of refugees. And you can see that really none of these countries is actually a developed country. Uh, the top recipient would be Pakistan, then Ethiopia, Democratic Republic of Con Congo, Uganda, Kenya, Chad, Tanzania, Bangladesh, Yemen, actually even a refugee sending country, and Burundi. So mainly poor countries really kind of, you could say, do the most in, in refugee protection. Uh, that changes a little bit if we look at the ref uh, Syrian refugee crisis and especially at the situation uh, post-2015 when there was really, again, an increase um, in, in refugees by 1 million. In 2014, there were around 3 million refugees from Syria, and in 2015, there were 4 million. And there, some European countries are among the top um, recipient countries uh, for refugees. Again, don't look at the numbers, just at the ranks. And there you can see, yes, I mean, uh, Germany ranks sixth, and Bulgaria, which is also interesting, which is perhaps not a country a lot of people had on the radar, they are ranking um, tenth. So this is for refugees. If you look at asylum seekers, again, I said some, especially um, European countries, use asylum procedures. Um, and also, if you think that, of course, in 2015, 16, a lot of people were still in the, in the asylum procedures, you do see a lot, of, a lot more European countries among the top recipient uh, countries. So also uh, countries like Hungary, Greece, Bulgaria, Sweden, or Austria. But that's really only for this short uh, period of time of 2000. Uh, 15, 16. So, yes, in this particular uh, part of the, the global refugee crisis, you could say European countries are actually, um, yeah, they, they, are, they are doing something or they receive uh, a decent uh, share or, yeah. What is now interesting is to turn to the question, okay, what are they actually doing to support others? Because we've seen that actually still most of the refugees are in, in the global, global south. Um, and, and this is essentially what is meant by responsibility sharing. Um, and um, I have recently worked on a project on responsibility sharing, and it's really a question, okay, what, what actually is part of responsibility sharing? So how can a state uh, support another state in, in refugee protection? There are a lot of debates about this, but um, what our working definition was that uh, responsibility sharing is the contribution of states towards supporting refugees who are on the territory of another state through either the redistribution of money, so through uh, supporting UNHCR financially, or um, through resettling people, so taking people from these, these countries um, and uh, hosting them in your, in your own country as, as refugees. And if you look at this, 
And now I'm really looking at kind of average resettlement numbers from 2007 to 2016. You can see that actually the biggest uh, provider of resettlement places is the United States with roughly 70,000 resettlement places per year. And compared to that, European countries are not, I mean, they're not doing anything substantially, you could could argue. I mean, of course, um, Sweden probably takes 2,000 um, uh, refugees a year, but also countries like the Netherlands or Germany, Finland, um, probably take less than a thousand uh, uh, resettled refugees a year, which is interesting. I mean, yes, in a way, they are among the top providers of resettlement places, but you could wonder if, if this is not perhaps only a drop in the, in the ocean, right? Because um, if you think of um, yeah, five million refugees alone being in countries like Turkey, um, Lebanon, and Jordan, uh, and, 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 and providing places for a couple of hundred people is certainly not, not a big uh, commitment to, to a resettlement. Um, if you now look into the contributions to UNHCR that um, the European countries are providing, you can see that, again, the, uh, the U.S. is actually doing the most. And here, again, the numbers don't make sense because I'm, again, looking, uh, controlling for which countries are the richest because I assume that they could potentially uh, do more. And here it's interesting that the, the second biggest donor, if you like, is the European Union. So it's the European Commission. Um, and um, also other European countries, such as the UK, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Denmark. But just to give you an idea of what this means in terms of numbers, so what the US is providing is roughly 900 million US dollars um, per year, which um, in, the case, in, in the case of Sweden, it's 113 million dollars, and the Netherlands provide roughly 78 million dollars. So it's, again, certainly um, uh, they are among the top contributors to UNHCR, but it's not, it's not a really significant amount of money if you think of, of the amount of people that are displaced. And we all know that except for some uh, countries, like, for example, Sweden, which is contributing 1.4% of its uh, GDP to uh, UN institutions um, and to aid projects, um, and not many, um, not, 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 yeah, European countries are not really um, providing a lot of in, in relation to their GDP for aid projects. Um, okay. Okay, so now some reflections and conclusions, because it's obviously, it's, yeah, I thought it's more of a reflection than a conclusion. Um, um, as, I, as I said previously, most refugees are obviously not in Europe, but they're in less wealthy countries um, in the global south, especially in, in Africa and in, in the Middle East, as the, as the maps has, have shown, and many of them are also internally displaced. However, these regions are in Europe's immediate neighborhood, and that's interesting because it leads to a very interesting dynamic when you talk to policymakers. On the one hand, you have the impression that actually provides an incentive to contribute to responsibility sharing. And here, um, it's quite interesting, in in 2015, the EU um, uh, developed uh, new resettlement initiatives. There were also previously some ideas, but um, they never really, really led to any substantial commitment. And in 2015, there were these new ideas. And here the idea was, okay, we, could, we should do more in terms of uh, resettlement especially, because that is a way to keep refugees from moving towards Europe. Certainly that also had good intentions in the, in the sense that they didn't want uh, people to cross the Mediterranean and die in the Mediterranean, but there was also this idea, okay, we, we give people hope so they don't move on, um, and then we don't have to deal with additional refugees. And that's, that's in a way a result really from being relatively close to 
to areas where there are a lot of conflicts and um, where, where lots of refugees are coming from. On the other hand, um, there's also an incentive not to contribute to responsibility sharing, which is kind of related to this being close to the, um, uh, to the ascending countries. And here the key argument is that Europe has already high numbers of spontaneous arrivals as compared to other uh, developed countries, also as compared, for example, to the U.S. or can Canada or, I don't know, Australia, which also has a very strong um, and restrictive border policy. And I think that kind of leads to to some commitments, but then countries not really wanting to do too much in this area. Um, and yeah, and, and I, kind of the key summary would be, yes, Europe is among the top donors and European countries are among the top resettling countries, but the contribution um, is, is marginal if you think about the potential effects of this. Okay, great, thank you. I'm only going to show you one map, um, and it's going to relate rather obliquely to today's theme. It concerns a projection of the world, uh, and the world as having parts in the first place. So w w both of the speakers were talking about people moving from one place to another, but you've only got one place to another place if you've got some division of place, otherwise you just have a homogenous space. So I'm interested in the idea that we have projections of the world which gives it parts, and in fact three parts. One of those parts will be Europe, and the map will in fact be a European map in a very special sense. Elizabeth Elspeth's question, whose map? That's uh, my question too. And Natasha's interest in where refugees are, those places are also my interest. But the map I will show you is in some way more than just a bit of geography, uh, but in some sense defines what it means to be European. Now, in an essay on European identity that was uh, written in the 1930s, the French poet and essayist Paul Valéry took his bearings on reflecting on what it means to be European from, first of all, the Mediterranean basin. So you have to shift our map of Europe, the Schengen map, up a bit so that we, we have the Mediterranean now in the middle. And he was looking back on very ancient history, thousands of years ago, more than 2,000 years ago, maybe 3,000 years ago. And he found there in the Mediterranean basin a place which was what he called, first of all, a marketplace. A marketplace that had attracted, he says, many and diverse races, becoming thereby, he says, a machine for making civilization. So think about these, this place like a kind of boiling pot of interaction across the Mediterranean and around the Mediterranean. He called it a factory. And what it produced, in his view, was Europeans. It's a factory for producing what we now call the Europeans. 
You noted at one point that the Mediterranean had such a potential because, and now these are his words, it washes the coasts of three very different parts of the world. Three. Three. Before it all began, as it were, there were three. Three parts of the world. Well, perhaps for the self-sketching European. And let's consider the three parts of the world that this European mind brings to its mind when it thinks about the world. And we can begin with the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus, the writer often regarded as the father or founder of history. And in his histories, he wondered, because he didn't know, why the world was divided into three three parts, and why they bore the names of three women, Asia, Libya, Europa. From around the second century BC, the part of the world that Herodotus called Libya was renamed by the Romans Africa. Now, remarkably, this is not the only tripartite division of the world found in ancient texts that have been originary in some way for Europe. Another tripartite division is found in the Bible. There the names are different, and it's three men, or boys, actually the sons of Noah, commencing their dispersion after the flood. And they are... Shem and Ham and Japheth. And I'll just read you a bit of the Bible from Genesis, which is the relevant text for this uh, tripartite division. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. God shall enlarge Japheth. Now just to let you know, the word Japheth means enlarge. So in the Hebrew, it's yapet le yapet. It's the same. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. And Canaan, the son of Ham, and Canaan shall be his servant. Now some 400 years into Christian history, the Latin-speaking Roman African Christian thinker St. Augustine presented a reading of the biblical story of Noah's sons that construed it as a piece of prophetic history, an allegory. For example, the Genesis narrative says that Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Well, the idea, according to Augustine, is that from the descendants of Shem, who were the Jews for Augustine, the Messiah will be born. In the tents of Shem that is, in the dwelling places of the Jews, the peoples descending from Japheth, namely the Christians, will enlarge, or as we might more naturally say today, spread out. Indeed, Japheth, as I say, just means that, spreading out or enlarge. Now hold on to this twofold tripartite division of the world for a moment. Before coming back to it, I want to turn briefly to a much more recent text, 
a text very much part of the modern European world, part, in fact, of a a sort of semi-official European history of the idea of Europe, published in 1995, and an essay in that book by the cultural historian Tim Den Boer. And in his contribution, there's a claim to reproduce in the spirit of disinterested European science and scholarship, the oldest known maps of the world. Pimdenboer confidently asserts that the oldest known maps of the world are to be found in medieval manuscripts. The old maps in question, one of which I'm going to show you in a moment, are called Noahide maps. They're named so because they present the dwelling places of the sons of Noah after the flood. And the oldest existing Noahide map was found in a copy of a now-lost early 7th-century manuscript by Isidore, Bishop of Seville. So there was this early uh, Noahide map, now lost, but we found uh, a a copy. But the interesting thing, uh, and this is um, absolutely right, is that this map by Isidore is entirely in accordance with the description provided by St. Augustine 200 years earlier. So the biblical names are there on the map in the dispersion after the flood, naming the parts of the world. But And now this is the fascinating thing. It incorporates the Greek names too, the first three that we had. So we're going to look in a moment in what Pimdenboer calls the oldest, one of the oldest maps, the oldest known maps of the world. Well, they're they're not at all the oldest known maps of the world, Um, There are much, 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 much older maps, maybe 6,000 years older, that have been found um, in sites near Baghdad. But one might say, I think more accurately, that these are the oldest known European maps of the world. Now, if we take that to mean that they're the oldest maps which are, as it were, made in Europe, like some clothes are made in China, uh, that that wouldn't be very interesting. But what if they are, as it were, the first maps, calling them the European maps, they're the first maps which are, as it were, the becoming European of a world, like a conception of the world or a projection of the world which is distinctively European? What if by forging and forming a certain tradition of more than one tradition, by bringing together in a single representation, in a a single space, Greek resources and a biblical, and here especially Christian, prophetic history? What if they project the projection of an understanding of the world that is in some way distinctively European? What if Europe's cultural identity has been fundamentally, not exclusively, but fundamentally, the holding sway of this gathered conjunction of two traditions, of the biblical and the Greek? What if as the Lithuanian-born French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas puts it, Europe is the Bible and the Greeks. He does not mean that Europe, um, as it were, should be thought of as having its history going back to that. He means that in the space of thinking and feeling that's opened up by these two dimensions, by the, the, uh, the wisdom of love in the Bible and the love of wisdom, in the Greek tradition, in this, in this sort of interesting space that th- this is the space that Europeans today still 
inhabit. Well, let's take a look at this European map, uh, the map of Europe, which is called the Noachide map. Now, the orientation of the map may be unfamiliar since it's oriented to the Orient, which is why we say that. Uh, these maps are also called OT maps because of the uh, letter-like geometry of their projection of the world and its division into three parts. So uh, in order to sort of as it, we'll see it more familiarly, you turn it round clockwise um, by a quarter, so we'd have Europe up here in the top left quadrant. Now the cross of the T, though, if we look at it across there, uh, is particularly interesting because it represents two rivers which flow roughly north-south in the way we think about it now, uh, roughly opposite each other out of the seas which wash the shores. So if we go uh, south, it's the River Nile, and to the north, um, it's the River Don, which hardly anybody knows now, but it, it, is, a, it is a river that goes roughly north <laughs> above, above, the, um, uh, above the Nile. But Europe, on this map, we've got Europe, Europa, and Japheth, and Africa, because, of course, this is after uh, the renaming of Libya as Africa, with um, uh, Ham and Asia with Shem. And Europe is the space of Japheth's spreading out. But Europe is given more significance than that. It's, in fact, unbelievably painful to read that God, God wished that Canaan, the son of Ham, the African, shall be Japheth's servant. So already we've got differences being projected internal to this projection. With the son of Ham as his recognized subaltern, as it were, God shall enlarge Japheth. Now the Isidore copy includes a Latin inscription which in English would say, Lo, Thus did the sons of Noah divide the world after the flood. But it's not a division without differences. This map of the world, this division of the world, is Japheth's map. It belongs to Japheth's world, imprinting a geography of the parts of the world which has today spread out and settled over the whole globe. Thank you. Thank you very much to all the speakers. Um, truly diverse topics, I would uh, say. Um, perhaps uh, my attempt to, to come up with one question before I open up the discussion to the audience is that uh, to a certain extent, the one thing you had in common was the creation of Europe on the one hand through the defining of otherness through maps. So you have the Schengen area, which basically uh, distinguishes us from the rest of, of the world to a certain extent. Your perception of Europe and construction of Europe through ancient maps and you looking at the migration streams. Um, could you actually, uh, it's a bit speculative, right? But um, if we look at this, do you think that the situation Europe is today in with this massive migration flows, are we seeing a further making of Europe, a construction through this external, um, even so only perceived perhaps, pressure, or are we seeing a breaking of Europe um, from your perception? 
<laughs> okay. I'll start and then we'll, do, we'll, you, we'll use the order and then we, we'll have to go backwards in the next set of questions. Okay. And I would say that um, the perception of migration pressure in Europe is a very odd idea because if we find that about 350 million tourists a year is a good idea, if the Greek Minister for Tourism announces in delight in September that in a country of 11 million inhabitants, there have been 30, over 30 million tourists that year, and this is really good, why do we find a few who need to stay a little bit longer a crisis? Uh, and I think we have a whole difficulty here. And one of the difficulties that we see of the international organizations is how do you define a migrant? Um, the... The Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, in the end, has said a migrant is a person who crosses a border, full stop, irrespective of what you want to do, how long you want to stay, what you want to do. The International Organization for Migration has gone even further and said it's anybody who crosses the, you know, crosses the street to buy a packet of crisps in the shop next door. So um, what is a migrant? It encompasses this whole idea of movement, and the IOM has actually just taken the border out of the equation altogether. So I think that the idea of a crisis is a very problematic one, and I think the idea of Europe is somehow keeping people out when so many people are welcomed and seen as a really jolly good idea and would more than please like to come, uh, leads to a completely different way of thinking about what what are these borders and these invisible borders than the one of crisis? Yeah, yeah I think migration has actually always existed. So it's, and, I mean, there were migratory, migratory movements long before there was the idea of a migrant because the idea of the migrant is very much kind of related to the idea of borders and nation states. Um, and, um, but of course, I mean, also in the history, there are some, in history, there are some examples of um, encounters by different um, cultures, if you like, for example, the, the Turks in, in Europe, and this idea, okay, there are people coming in, in, invading uh, Europe in a way. And, and that, that led also, in a way, to a lot of, actually, to a lot of chances and to a lot of uh, development of new um, uh, cultures, the coffee culture, things like that. So I think, and I think if we look at really at the current situation, the 2015 crisis, which I agree the word crisis is not really, really adequate here, I think that is not a big it's, – it's very much a perception of, of a crisis. It's not really – I mean, as you say, uh, how, uh, one million people, is that really such a big challenge for Europe? I think it is something that is in a way very much created, obviously, as, as a problem through, through media and also through um, populist parties who are using migrants to kind of create a crisis and say, look, we have a problem here. But in the end, I mean, the question is really, is, is this going to disrupt uh, um, yeah, the, the foundations of Europe? I, 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 don't, I don't think so. It only does if, if we allow allow certain groups to kind of use it to, um, yeah, to, uh, to, to, like populists, for example, to use this to, to um, uh, split society. Um, this, this, this map is uh, medieval, but if we go somewhat more into, uh, towards our time, up to the 18th century, 
people began to think that these parts of the world and the division of the world was in some ways artificial. Europeans, I mean. They, and they started projecting a kind of historical finality for these divided people in which the relationships between them would be less conflictual because that's, as it were, that, what they were seeing around them was uh, relations which were not of, as it were, mutual understanding and trust, something opposite, in fact. And um, people started talking about a, a sort of humanity of the future in which mutual recognition and trust would have m displaced um, war and aggression. And one of the things they did then think about was these borders that are there. And some of them thought that perhaps the borders would evaporate in this transition for humanity so that in a way that what Elspeth you're describing as the, the, the welcome to the tourist would be given to every other. But more often than not, and even into our time, the distinction between the tourist and the settled people uh, the tourist is a settled, in their eyes, was a settled person somewhere else who may have been displaced, but as it were, they were a settled person somewhere else coming as a tourist or a visitor to, a, to another settled place. And um, tourists were, in, in, in their vocabulary, always welcome. In fact, they thought that in this future relationship that we'd have with each other, uh, not they didn't call it tourism, but the possibility to present yourself in the in the, in the space of some other citizenship uh, would be a right for everybody. But none of them ever projected a world, really, in which those visitors had a right to stay. Uh, they thought you couldn't send them back if that would bring about harm to them. Um, and so ideas of asylum grew up. Um, but... They thought, and they, they, they thought mainly on religious grounds, that human beings in some ways had cultural differences that they thought of in terms of linguistic and religious differences, uh, which meant that a, a kind of borderless world was a sort of fantasy. Not that it wasn't, wasn't in a way rationally the right thing, uh, but actually uh, in practice... Uh, to organize a humanity without borders would, would require a kind of despotism from above that would be worse than the situation of one in which you can get harmonious relationships between people, settled people, within borders. So I, I'm, I don't think we should take too seriously the difference between the way we think of tourists and the way we think of people who may be thought of as staying. And that is a difference which is a, like very ingrained inside, particularly for Europe, uh, the way of thinking about nation states as places of settled peoples and citizens. Now, it may be that one could reconstruct an idea of how we ought to think about ourselves as people, um, but history, is a, as it were, is a robust and resilient thing, and you can't just sort of say, tomorrow we'll think differently. Are there any questions or comments from the audience, perhaps?
Yeah. Uh, uh, shall we collect? Uh, so there's one. You had one, and then you also had one. Okay. Can you perhaps please uh, quickly introduce yourself and um, say where you're from, and then state your questions? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ben Ryan. I, I'm an alumnus of the European Institute, uh, among other things. Um, my question was, uh, it strikes me that a, a map's fundamental purpose, unless it's purely for navigation, is, is to delineate. It's, it's to be able to split the world up, um, and specifically in order to be able to split it up according to where a particular power or sovereignty comes to an end, um, so that you know when you're moving from one area of power to another and whose, whose realm you're in. You can't really have a nation state unless you can draw it. Um, is the kind of theory there. Uh, and with that in mind, I wonder if part of the purpose of, of a map is actually in defining identity in, in the first instance um, versus those kind of theories that you get nations out of a language. I wonder if it's the ability simply to be able to draw it on a map uh, and specifically to say this is where one power ends and another begins, which really begins to define what your identity might be. Uh, one immediate thing on that, if I, I, yeah. I can, is um, uh, what the, the phrase you began with, whose realm, is the far, first part of a, an old phrase, which in English would be whose realm, his religion, which is precisely an idea of the sovereign territory. And this, this is uh, more or less what developed in Europe in the, uh, that brought to an end religious wars by precisely defining transitions of uh, sovereignty from one space to another. Although, at the same time, interestingly, although it's whose realm, his religion, these were also becoming secular spaces. Uh, and that, that's a, a, an this Treaty of Westphalia, uh, which is often regarded as the beginning of the nation-states of Europe as we understand them today, but it's very interesting that they are still religiously grounded uh, distributions and in fact there were extraordinary migrations of people mm -hmm. through those times, forced migration sometimes uh, or fleeing in fact um, in, in that situation but it did produce that distribution of sovereign powers across Europe which uh, has embedded itself inside uh, nation state formation even today. Maybe related to that, I think, I mean, I agree um, that um, the idea that um, kind of a map or having, um, being able to, to um, really draw, draw the, the boundaries of, of a country has, is related to, to identity. I think that is also very, very much a European idea. If you think of, for example, African countries that today still have borders that are kind of have been drawn with the, with the yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and they have, they, they don't really, reflect the culture or the, or the cultures within the country and the, uh, the different ethnicities and, and people within these boundaries don't, don't identify. So it's, it's quite interesting how Europe exported this, this idea of the map towards other places and um, yeah, how, it's, how it's still impacting um, on, on um, today's politics. Okay. Can I throw in a dissident voice there? Um, the uh, critical geographer, Gerard Mounier, uh, wrote a book called Lying with Maps. And his premise in that book is that maps are written for military adventures and they're all about showing where are the routes, the road from here to there, where is the place where you can conquer the next place from, that maps have this 
profound um, military nature, which is at the core of their being, and which is about lying about places. So I always see the connection to the Brexit debate here, I mm -hmm. must say. But uh, perhaps we continue uh, with the gentleman here in the front who had a question. Um. Hi. Yeah, I'm Friedrich. Um, I'm at the European Institute as a student at the moment. Um, and I was a bit surprised by both Elspeth and Natasha's comment, because um, my feeling is, was um, that you had a very culture-focused um, take on, on migration and um, to other countries. On the one hand, when Elspeth, you say, well, if Greece welcomes tourists for a short time, why do they not welcome so many or more few people who stay a bit longer? I'm sure you have considered, that would be my spontaneous reaction now, that, well, tourists come for some time, leave again and leave money. Um, refugees come, don't leave again and well, seek money. Um, so my, my feeling is that that would be uh, the, 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 what is often forgotten in all this, like you are against the foreigners, et cetera, et cetera. Well, somehow there is a correlation, most interestingly, between having a nice welfare state and surprisingly not being so nice towards uh, migration. Um, so being nice there doesn't mean you'd be nice there. Um, at the same time, if I turn this around towards Natasha, um, I would say I think there is a little danger in saying, in stressing too much, oh, migration has always been good for us, because that would mean, in a way, I think, that I will potentially ask a refugee, what can you contribute to our culture? And only if you can contribute coffee or whatever it is, then you're welcome here. So that makes it somehow, I find, quite a pressure when really I would like to give refuge. Sorry, it was a very long question, but, or comment rather. If you want to directly react um, to this? Or? Yeah, so maybe, I mean, I, I, was not say, so I was not saying that obviously every aspect of migration is always always good, but it, it has a lot of, I mean, it, we, we always think it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's always a big challenge, but um, maybe there are really good aspects related to it. And I think, I mean, I was not arguing that refugee protection should only be granted on, on the basis that someone is contributing. I mean, refugee protection is something that's, that states are granting because they, they have to, because they have signed uh, international treaties. Um, that doesn't mean that refugees cannot also contribute to societies. And I think there are lots of examples of, for example, refugees in Uganda which who contribute a lot or also mean individual examples of refugees who contribute. But that doesn't mean that this is kind of the expectation. That's, 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 that's two different stories, obviously. I mean, um, you provide refugee protection because, you, because that's a duty of um, a state uh, that wants to that, yeah, um, shares ideas about human rights. So that's, uh, yeah. I think I wouldn't make that connection. I think I didn't, I didn't want to say that. Can I yep. throw my two cents worth in? The first is, poor old UNHCR is busy trying to convince us all that, bur that refugees are not a burden, they are an opportunity. And, of course, you know, in all of us, uh, among us, there must be many people in this room who have, at least within the last two or three generations, some member of their family who has been a refugee somewhere. And we all think we're a tremendous opportunity to the states in which we live. So the idea that refugees are burdens is this kind of odd idea which is um, counterfactual to our personal experience, the personal experience of many people around us. And the second thing I would say about this whole question of movement of people, if we don't stop them, they'll all come here. 
and they'll you know, use up all of our welfare state. And I think we have to keep remembering this extraordinary experiment that we did in the European Union, saying free movement of persons to work, to reside, etc., and the entitlement to claim social benefits on arrival, if you need them, in another EU member state. There are all kinds of, we can go into the jurisprudence about that, but the fact of the matter is that the average income and the minimum wage in Bulgaria is about one-twentieth of what it is in Denmark. And yet, in fact, Bulgarians continue to live in Bulgaria. Three percent of the European Union lives in a member state other than that of their underlying nationality. So border controls and this whole idea of immigration doesn't seem to have this amazing power to either draw people from poverty to wealth or to prevent them moving from poverty to wealth. Sorry, um, you had a question, right? No. Let's, let's use the microphone, otherwise people don't hear it. Yeah, thank you for welcoming me back to the LSE because I was an alumnus too of the European Institute and um, now I'm doing political geography as a PhD in Durham. And... Um, so when, when you were talking about the Levinas uh, quote, which you used to quote a lot when, when you were teaching, um, <laughs> he does, doesn't he? He still does, yeah. Um, that was really interesting because it sort of just conveys that sort of idea of difference between um, us and the other. And then you had the map that was medieval and, and it sort of showed us how far this goes back, these ideas. Um, but one of the things that I thought was sort of missing the elephant in the room, and you're an economist, was the fact that there's a sort of um, there's an there's a economic incentive to having maps, drawing up and defining different spaces, rationalizing them. And uh, I was just wondering whether or not you think that we're on this sort of verge of uh, another sort of historical change where we have to start thinking beyond maybe capital and sort of towards something that goes beyond that and sort of incorporates this idea of hospitality and uh, cosmopolitanism or not. Uh, can I say one thing on, one thing on that? I, I'm really glad that you remember, uh, first of all. But, um, <laughs> when I, when, one of the things I always say when I say in the, when I have more than 10 minutes is um, we shouldn't leave Levinas's thought intact, as it were, just set it in stone and here we now have the answer to the question of what it is to be a European. Europe is the Bible and the Greeks. And uh, one of the things that I say is that we should make at least two adjustments to this. And then I make a further complication. But the two adjustments are we should recognize properly not just the Greek and biblical influences on the European culture uh, cultural identity, but also at least an Islamic and Judaic uh, formation inside there. At least, you know, there's, that's, there's an awful lot more, but at least. But then, so uh, uh, one of the um, formulas I also run out with people is, say, to, uh, is to say Greek, Christian, and beyond to uh, try to pick up on that. But you said, um, can we think of beyond of, say, capital and so on? Um, that thought of the beyond, and this is the second point I always try to make, is that somehow inside that European cultural formation is an idea of the possibility of the change to a beyond. And this is I'm not, I don't want to suggest that other places don't have this, 
it, it's not a, a claim of uh, uh, exceptionalism or uniqueness, but somehow inside the space, which is, as it were, Greek and Christian predominantly, uh, there is this possibility inside of itself to move beyond itself. And uh, that beyond is somehow already inscribed inside that Europe of the Bible and the Greeks. And that's always interested me. Uh, things like the Enlightenment, things like revolution and so on, these aren't things that come into, into that European cultural space from outside, but it, it has its own productive possibility of moving to its own beyond. And so that thought which you just framed of the beyond, that would be a, in some perhaps rather ironic way, uh, uh, a kind of confirmation of that uh, Levinasian idea of the Greco-Biblical as being this space, of, not of uh, uh, stationariness, of like forever Greek Christian, <laughs> but actually the Greek Christian space is somehow in itself open to its own tr transformation. I don't know about a beyond of capital, though. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not an econo economist. I think it's not an economic are. question. I think it's a philosophical question. No. It's a normative question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there was also. Didn't you have a question? I thought. Huh? Okay. Um, but then, please go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Um, <clears throat> my name is Steve Cooney, and uh, I'm a. Um, uh, I'm also an alumnus of LSE, uh, and I guess more to, uh, interestingly, I'm also a, a member of Chatham House. And I was just reading this afternoon at Chatham House. Uh, a new uh, journal article from World Politics by uh, the Bulgarian author um, uh, and um, a political scientist, our political sociologist, uh, Ivan Zastrev. And his comment was, his, his analysis was on the origins of Eastern European illiberalism. And his point was, uh, that's relevant here, he said there are um, two very important basal factors, which certainly I didn't realize, fully, even though I've studied a lot of European history, including here at LSE. Um, one is that um, the um, leaders in Eastern Europe, in countries like Poland and Hungary, that have been the, on the extreme edge of European illiberalism, um, their countries are basically homogenous. They have few immigrants from anywhere. I, I was really stunned at that, um, knowing of the whole history, of, you know, particularly like Austria-Hungary, but no, now today their populations are almost totally homogenous. Uh, just as one example strikes my mind, in Poland, the number of Muslims in Poland is 0.1%. Um, the um, other point he made was that when um, in, in the post, uh, in post-1990, the uh, uh, anti-communist revolution, or you want to call it, um, the collapse of the Eastern Europe of, of, of the Warsaw Pact, um, most of these countries had very high levels of, em so it's, this is paradoxical. They had very high levels of emigration extremely high, 20 to 25 percent, for example, of the people living in Lithuania and um, Latvia, just for instance, emigrated. 
We also know the immigration of number, the numbers in, in Britain who immigrated from Poland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I personally know Hungarians who have left to Britain. So, uh, and, and, and his point is that that sort of, that sort of creates a dual dynamic, which, which I think I'd like to hear your comment on, saying that this is what's creating the tension in Europe between those who have a, 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 a liberal and accepting view of migration to those who, who emphasize the danger to their cultural heritage from high levels, for, well, because of, of any level of, of, of foreign um, 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 influence. Thank you. Sorry for the long intervention, but I thought you'd be interested in hearing about that. Yeah. Perhaps who wants to go first? Yeah? Actually, yeah, that's that's really interesting what you're saying, and I think um, on the the first observation, so that the that those are actually really homogenous societies. I mean, on the one hand, one could wonder, okay, if they're so homogenous, why do they bother about uh, immigrants? But there is actually um, one hypothesis in migration studies, the, the so-called contact hypothesis, suggesting that the more you, you know migrants, the more you think they're actually okay. So if you see a lot of migrants, if you have perhaps friends with migrants, um, or if you have friends who are migrants, then you actually don't consider them as a kind of um, anonymous mass, but you, you really identify them more as, as people. Um, and I also um, I, I read a, a survey in, from Poland and from the, actually from the Visegrad countries where people were asked, and you could see that a lot of people didn't know, they didn't know any immigrant, any person from a different background. And I think that could potentially explain a liberalism. Um, I'm not sure about the emigration, so how that would play out, but it's, it's, I mean, it's quite interesting that some countries that have a long history of emigration, they also have, uh, tend to have citizenship laws, um, which are very much based on keeping a relationship towards, um, yeah, towards the people who emigrated. They have a very kind of strong use sanguinis, uh, so based on, on blood and, and yeah, relationships, so having kind of uh, long family lines uh, going back, and they only give or tend to give citizenship mainly to, to people uh, who have a background in this country, whereas people who are immigrating don't receive citizenship very quickly. I mean, I'm not sure how that is uh, playing out in the, in the Central Eastern European countries, but it could perhaps explain this. But I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what – did they make any arguments about the, how immigration, the, the immigration history made them illiberal? Did they say anything? Well, I, <laughs> I, I have to put his words into, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I, I have to, uh, the, the basic thought was that what happened was that the people who emigrate, um, they have the types of experiences you're talking mm -hmm. about. So Polish people come to England, just to use a common example. Um, uh, Polish people come to this country, to Great Britain, and they, uh, well, I have a good friend um, in, uh, in, in my tennis club who is, uh, his wife is Polish, and, you know, she, um, so, so they, there's contacts across the society there. They tend to take, therefore, a more liberal mm -hmm. view mm -hmm. of the, but the people who don't leave, okay. mm -hmm don't have that experience, and that creates the dichotomy, and that's what creates the strong reaction in countries like Poland and Hungary, where there mm -hmm. have been very strong political reactions um, in the illiberal or anti-immigrant direction 
and in fact, they are extremely fearful of how the impact of immigration across the border will affect their own culture. Perhaps uh, the other speakers would also like to intervene, but perhaps if I can also voice my opinion. I know Russia pretty well, actually, from personal uh, experience, and Russia is a fairly heterogeneous uh, society, and xenophobia is definitely mm -hmm. very, and yeah. illiberalism is definitely very strong there. So I don't think there's a clear-cut correlation here between uh, migration flows and uh, political orientation and borders, basically. But, um, Simon, I think you wanted to intervene, no? Well, I, I, I think it's important that you... Uh, use words like uh, liberal and illiberal probably, but uh, in, in a, in a uh, sort of the traditions of um, philosophy that liberalism belongs to, there's a big emphasis. Uh, sometimes people say it's an emphasis on the idea of the individual. It's less, less the idea of the individual, but the idea that every other is worthy of respect. That's a very sort of classic m m liberal m moral philosophy that, uh, that there's a kind of universal equality of respect due to every other. And, uh, and so liberalism has had, it, wherever it's taken root culturally, tended to um, cultivate spaces where uh, the arrival of the other is, is not a moment of threat in the same way. And, and what we get then in, um, in the development of that politically is on the one hand, a kind of cosmopolitan uh, character to uh, political interest, that, that if something happens to our fellows far, far away, that matters to us. And if they arrive to us in some trauma, that matters to us. So that you do, I think the word liberal is quite important there, and, and its roots in liberal philosophy are quite deep. And, so, and uh, one of the cleavages that's often spoken about of of recent time, particularly in Europe, but not only in Europe, is between uh, globalists who uh, are often called, in a terribly complicated phrase, rootless people, uh, and um, localists. But the, that, that, that's not such a good distinction, I think, globalists and localists. You, you used liberal and illiberal, but what one might think for the illiberal side, because that sounds like a term of rebuke, Right, which it probably maybe it should be, but one could speak about a culture in which communitarian bonds are very important, uh, where uh, the relation to the other is not just every every each one counts, but um, my link to this other, this particular one, is as it were internal to who I am. And so you get a communitarian bond as, a, as established as a cultural identity, much more importantly than the, the perhaps rather looser one of a, of a liberal uh, respect and tolerance. And so you have the may, maybe one of the things that we see. I don't. I mean, you know, I don't know actually about political geography in this, but that um, uh, heritages of the more communitarian kind. Uh, in Western Europe, that would probably be more Catholic countries, and uh, uh, um, countries which have, in which uh, liberalism has uh, taken root, um, which would, generally speaking, be the more Protestant countries, um, might show up that kind of difference between the what you've called the liberal and the illiberal. Can I? 
Sure. It's my turn to throw my two cents worth in, as usual. And the first thing I would say is, remember that Poland has received half a million migrants a year for the last five years, much more than Germany has, uh, two and a half million, and they're still coming. Where are they coming from? Of course, Ukraine. The implosion of Ukraine and the implosion of Belarus has resulted in massive numbers of people, comparatively speaking. I mean, we're still talking about it. And it's not a problem. They are not treated as refugees, of course, because that would mean that Warsaw would have to say that Kiev was persecuting its citizens. So they just turn up and they're given work and residence permits. And what did the rest of Europe do? They lifted the mandatory visa requirement so these people could arrive regularly. So we can't, I think your, your author is taking a very bizarre view. The other thing is, Viktor Orban, about eight years ago, one of the first things he did was he conferred Hungarian citizenship on Hungarian uh, communities, that, as he described them, in all of the neighboring countries. It almost caused a, a, a war with Slovakia. Uh, they were so pissed off, saying, you can't steal our citizens. What do you mean you're just going to confer citizenship on them? So you have very, your, your author is giving an idea of homogeneity, which is absolutely not present, and then building a whole um, construction on top of that. He's Bulgarian, by the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> neighbors, neighbors, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, just a quick reply to, to what you said. I mean, it's obviously the, the so this uh, is, the argument is a, a little bit more complex, but I think what is also what you have to bear in mind in the case of Russia, and I'm not an expert on Russia, but I think in Russia there are also actually a lot of, if you can call that kind of, internal conflicts with different groups and I think that might also be a driver, I mean it might be a driver of this where kind of certain internal groups are respected less because then that's also uh, yeah, in a way uh, argued as they are from a yeah, different culture and, and, and different ethnic background so maybe ethnic conflicts also um, are another example or another intervening kind of variable which, which then uh, yeah so it's, so it's not necessarily about migratory or contact with migrants. I mean, those are not migrants, those, those are internal people. Okay. Um, yeah. Shall we take perhaps a couple of more questions and then... Yeah, hi. Um, are we not being a little bit naive in not understanding that probably one of the most, if not the most important thing that defines Europe is that Europe's culture, right? And because, uh, I mean, European culture... Uh, I think we can, most people would agree, it's an incredible society we've developed here, which has got, you know, fund fundamental, it's kind of based on democracy, uh, respect for human rights, gender equality, um, LGBT rights, that kind of thing. Uh, and also sort of since the Enlightenment, a kind of belief in rationality. Um, is it really not a bit naive to think we can literally have an influx of millions of people from parts of the world where a large percentage of those people are not going to share those beliefs. They're not going to, for them, sort of gay rights is probably not high up in their sort of priority. Of, uh, and also they might not have our respect for um, democracy. They, they, and they might sort of think that forced marriage or arranged marriage or even polygamous marriage or even sort of marriage to child 
rides as quite acceptable, right? I mean, and also they might kind of think that, you know, the, the legal system as well that's been constructed in Europe is also an incredibly important fundamental underpinning of our society. If you've got people coming in who think it would actually be better to have Sharia law, how can that not possibly be a threat to European civilization? I, I really think it's kind of naive to just ignore those fairly massive factors Perhaps, can I make a first comment on that? I mean, I'm, I'm from Germany originally, and I remember, like, or I don't remember, but I know that in Germany in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when you had this massive inflow of uh, Gastarbeiter, of migrant workers, right, the assumption was that Italians were basically bringing, you know, values which were not German in that sense. So, I mean, I think that's a very constructed thing as well, and nowadays nobody would ever doubt that Italians kind of endorse the same values as we do. Um, that as a comeback to a certain extent. To you. Yeah, I mean, plus also, I mean, migrants are also very kind of diverse. I mean, there might be some people who don't share this values, there might be people who share these values, right? It's really hard to, 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 I mean, are we then not letting in refugees who, if, I mean, if we have this fundamental um, expectations that all migrants don't share these values, then we obviously don't let some people in who, who do share this, these values. And I think which is also, what is also always important when you think of migration, I mean, yes, maybe it is harder for the first generation to really adapt to these, to these new surroundings, new values, cultures, And also the question is, I mean, what is European culture? It's also, that's also diverse. Uh, but I think the second generation, and that's probably also relating to what you said, the second generation is already on, and the third generation, they, they are much more, I mean, there's really, you can't really see much of a, I mean, much of a difference to, to other. Hmm? Anyway, sorry. Mm -hmm. Sorry? I, I mean, I think that in Britain, uh, uh, second and third generation may be less, feel less uh, part of the social world than, than their parents or grandparents. Okay, they, is, uh, they feel less because, because they feel yeah, more More marginalised, more excluded, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, in, 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 a, in a way, they, they have grown up here, so maybe in, they, they are not questioning at least, uh, I don't know, uh, the, the idea of human rights. I mean, maybe they feel marginalised and turn to certain... Uh, certain ideas or certain ideological groups because they, they feel marginalized, but they are still grow, they grew up in this environment and that, that also is actually socializing them a lot more than they might actually uh, say it, it, it did. Eurostat produced some statistics on what they call integration. The member states wanted to know. Tell us about integration. Eurostat said, well, we can only count things that are countable. And One of the things that they discovered was that the outcomes for children born in the EU of parents born outside the European Union have better outcomes in terms of household income, housing, and education than so-called nationals. So they do better than their colleagues and their, 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 the rest of their co cohort who are two, three, four, five generations living in a country. I think the question of sharing beliefs and the idea that somehow Europe is homogenous is, a, is problematic as well. Our attitudes towards smoking cannabis are extraordinarily different across the European Union. Our attitudes towards abortion, extraordinarily different, different across EU member states. <laughs> the age of consent varies by 10 years, depending on the member states. So be careful who you have sex with in which member state. The idea that somehow we're homogenous in our laws is 
not exactly sustainable? Uh, thanks for that question. Um, it's really interesting to hear it now because uh, it's probably less easy to express that thought now than it would have been uh, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Um, the Enlightenment, which you referred to, understood itself in terms of a project of the emancipation of rational subjectivity, that we would move ourselves through our own work as rational beings towards a way of life that would be marked by peace, uh, freedom, well-being. That idea, that Enlightenment idea, is very central to Europe's sort of sense of itself as a, a progressive civilization rather than a sort of a, some despotic regime where you've got a ruler imposing everything from outside and you're subject to uh, the rule of the club, as it were. And um, that idea of Europe and, and of its it civilization hit an, hit an unimaginably massive brick wall in the 20th century or through the 20th century first with the First World War, a war of European origin in which a world which was meant to be representing itself as uh, exemplary of humanity uh, producing a world war and the Second World War following it, also a war of European origin uh, and the, show, the, the Holocaust and so on that went with that and not just those more or less internal European affairs, but also colonialism and imperialism and the absolute violence that, that, that Europeans brought to human beings elsewhere in the world. So that by the middle of the 20th century, that vision of Europe that you presented, which is not gone, and, and I, to be honest, I wouldn't also entirely give up on it, although I don't know... Uh, that it's so easy simply to affirm in the way you did. Uh, Europe hit what people in the mid-20th century called a spiritual crisis, a massive spiritual crisis where uh, it came to be the case, and I, I don't want to think that you would represent this side, but where people thought that Europe would be defined exclusively by its crimes. And I'm sure that's what you're, in a way pulling against, that you just hear Europe, bad place, Europe, bad place, Europe, nasty people, Europeans, and so on. Isn't Europe also the place of rationality, science, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and it's very, actually, an extraordinarily difficult time for us to live today, where, as it were, the, the engine of Europe's identity um, has undergone uh, such a period of uh, what some people call its exhaustion uh, in our time, that uh, how best to think about what it means to be European at all now is, is very shaky. And, and perhaps one reaction is just to say uh, to have no interest in Europe at all <laughs> and to have only interest in everybody who's not European. And that's a kind of odd turnaround. Okay, one last question. Um, okay, then uh, to have at least uh, one woman <laughs> talking up, it's not very gender balanced so far, I would... Uh, I'd like to give this microphone to you. Um, I'm not from the LSE, um, 
I'm from an organization of uh, EU citizens in the UK. Um, my question is to you, I'm thinking of the Schengen map and uh, what is the function of borders. And um, when I'm thinking that um, the British government says we don't need any outside borders, we have the hostile environment, which functions as some kind of border that will eject undesirable people by turning landlords and and employers and so on into border agents, basically. Um, I, I would like to know what, what, what you think of that, conceptually, of something like that. Well, it's quite a direct question at me. Um, yes, I think that the temptation, once we started moving borders in Europe, and we started moving them around and disregarding them and playing with them in respect of people, really a process which begins in the mid-1980s and moves onwards. At the same time that we're doing that, and the UK is saying, no, no, we have hard borders, the UK was already experimenting with the idea about what about giving these foreigners their own little borders, their own little capsules, which are the borders around them, which even if they penetrate our external borders, will keep them out of our civil society in all kinds of manners. And that really kicked off in a more... It started off as an idea that, well, you could refuse someone entry to the United Kingdom, but you could give them temporary admission, which means that they're not really here, but they're living here, and they may live here 20 years. It happens a lot to asylum seekers. But they're not really here because they were refused at the border. So there's this idea that you can take the border with you in. And then it became such a terrific idea that our prime minister decided in 2013 that she would develop this and that this could become a way of reducing the cost of making these people who shouldn't be here leave, sort of what the Americans call self-deportation, uh, by this hostile environment where everyone tells some people that they can't do something. And, of course, the, the convulsions and you know, the loss of Home Secretary and a whole bunch of other people over this week are the result of the hubris that is inherent in that idea. You start going down that road and what you end up with is uh, terrific cleavages within society and um, political failure. All right. Then um, thank you very much for um, coming and for your interest and um, have a good night and hopefully see you next year. <laughs>